Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute, and this podcast is a joint production with Policy Forum. This week on Democracy Sausage Extra, we're going to look at some new and unique longitudinal research coming out of ANU about public attitudes in Australia going to fears of infection and of financial ruin as the COVID crisis continues to savage the economy, hammering businesses and destroying jobs. And I'm glad to say the two researchers, Professor Nicholas Biddle and Professor Matthew Gray, both no strangers to Democracy Sausage, are with me, albeit remotely. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Now, let's start at the beginning with the methodology question. This is billed as a longitudinal examination of the social, mental, economic and political impacts of the coronavirus. Some of our listeners will be familiar with that terminology, but for those who aren't, could you perhaps uh, just explain what this survey is? Maybe this is one for you, Nick. Yeah, sure. So um, in uh, the middle of April, uh, we went to about a little over 3,000 uh, participants in the Life in Australia panel. So the Life in Australia panel is essentially people who've been recruited to fill in a survey every month uh, on a different topic. Uh, and the great thing about going to the Life in Australia panel to ask uh, questions on kind of topics of the day uh, is we have their responses to previous surveys. Uh, so some of your listeners will remember uh, we uh, did a survey in January on exposure to the bushfires and the effect on people's attitudes towards the climate and, and political issues. We also did a, a, a longer survey in February where we asked people about uh, their economic uh, outcomes, their employment outcomes, uh, their income. And what that allowed us to do is to follow up with the same people uh, to ask them about how these things have changed uh, in April. Uh, so we asked them about their employment status in February and April. Uh, we asked them about their trust, their confidence in government in January and in April. Uh, we asked them about their income in uh, in February and April. And what that allows us to do is not only to see whether there's change in outcomes for Australia as a whole, but who uh, is changing. Uh, are the effects of COVID-19 more pronounced for the young compared to the old? Uh, are the effects on the labour market greater for males compared to females? Uh and are the declines which we have seen uh, in mental health or subjective well-being, are they the same uh, across uh, the population? And what that allows us to do is get a better sense of 
what's driving some of these changes, which we see at the national level, uh, as well as uh, can we explain that by some of the other characteristics of the individuals? Terrific. And what's really interesting about this is that, and valuable, is that it's the same group, isn't it, that you're talking to in over that period of time. So you're getting this 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 shift. Yeah, and, and we uh, quite fortunately have very high uh, longitudinal um, uh, response rates. So uh, almost uh, or, or over 90%, about 95% of the people who we interviewed in February, uh, we're interviewed again in April. So we're not concerned about uh, attrition, which is one of the things which tends to affect longitudinal surveys. We know that certain people drop out, uh, and and that means your 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 results can be a little bit biased. We're not worried about that. We're very confident that we have very good information on the same people. Um, so we know that any changes can be attributed to the data which we're collecting rather than changes due to just who are asking or who are not asking. All right, well, let's go to some of the main findings. We know millions of jobs have been affected by this, many jobs lost and many hours lost, and unsurprisingly, this has fueled anxiety, uh, such as one in four respondents uh, think it's probable they'll lose their jobs. Matt, uh, do you want to speak to that? We find that... Um in total, about 670,000 um, people have lost their job between February and April. And, and one of the big advantages with the survey we've got is we've got data collected uh, immediately before the COVID-19 restrictions started in, in February. Uh, so that's about uh, 60, in February, about 62% of adults were employed, and uh, in April we find it's uh, just it's 60, uh, 59%, so 58.9%. Might not sound like much of a drop, but that's huge. Uh, it's a much bigger job than's happened uh, any, over any two months, two months period over the last uh, 40 years. Uh, and um, there's also been a drop in hours worked for those who remained employed. And uh, we find about a drop in the hours of about uh, 52 million or 13% of hours worked, and that is a really enormous drop, I think. When we look back through the ABS data, uh, it was a, the biggest previous drop over a two-month period was about 2.5%, so it's um, yeah, much, much bigger than has happened uh, any time in the recent past. You know, there's that uh, saying that uh, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, there's obviously material uh, risks here which people are already experiencing but there's a lot of anxiety as well and that's one of your findings isn't it that better than 50% of people think that if they're going to lose their jobs that could happen in the next 12 months. Overall about um, the average expected probability of job loss is 24 about about 25% right. um, but yeah we find that one in four think that they have a more than 50% chance of losing their job in the next 12 months, and that's a really high number. And that creates a lot of uncertainty because if, you, if you're feeling that, you're highly likely to defer in, uh, making major purchasing decisions. Um, you see it in people drawing down their savings, um, yeah, and trying to create buffers. So I was just going to say, just to add to that, uh, and the other thing is, I mean, it's one thing to lose your job, but also it, in a reasonably buoyant labour market, you've got a reasonable chance of getting another one. So we also asked about um, the likelihood of, of getting an equally good job if you did lose your job. Uh, and once again, we found very, very uh, strong pessimism. So on average, about 41% of people 
um, thought that they'd get a job as at least as good if they did lose their job. Um, and only 8% thought it was uh, 100% chances they'd get a, a better job. So that when you, kind of when you add the chances of losing a job and getting a better one, as Matt said, this is really strong pessimism about the future and, uh, and people think uh, that it's that the labour market outcomes might be bad now, uh, but they're certainly not going to get better into the future. And what can we tell about uh, from the data about uh, the the age distribution of these uh, effects? Uh, uh, people, younger people, seem to be more aggregated in in the casualised workforce. Yeah. Are they uh, especially victims of this, or perceive themselves to be? Yeah, we find the biggest uh, loss in employment. Um, from February to April is amongst 18 to 24-year-olds, uh, yeah, for the reasons you just said. Uh, people starting out, they're more tenuously connected, connected to the labour market, more likely to be casual, uh, shorter term with the employer. But we also find substantial job losses amongst those over 65. Increasingly, numbers of people are working uh, over 65 and um, big losses in that group. And for young people, uh, based on what's happened in previous uh, recessions, uh, there can be scarring effects, long-term scarring effects from unemployment. Yeah, so you've got the scarring effects on the uh, on the on the people at the in the earlier age groups in the labour force. And you mentioned there that people over sixty-five are uh, losing losing jobs. Presumably, in in many cases, those people. It, it may even be true for people at the at the lower at the younger group, but. Uh, for the older workers, very high likelihood I would have thought that they will not re-enter the workforce yeah. at all. No, I think that's... Um, Bob Gregory, um, you know, the, the well-known um, economist, ANU economist, has done some research on this in the past and he's he's well-known for the observation that, um, you know, people even younger than, than 65, maybe over 50, who fall out of the workforce during recessions have a, you know, much lower chance of actually finding and holding secure work uh, back in the future. Yes, that's that's right. And they will also have um, lower retirement incomes due to the falls in asset prices. Now, it will depend a lot on how quickly things can bounce back, but uh, the predictions are, and my expectation is, that we could well have a sustained uh, period of lower economic growth. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that for those groups, there's going to be particular challenges. For young people, I think some will find it very difficult uh, longer term. For many people, it will be an unpleasant experience, but then life goes on. Uh, but I think for young people, there is going to be a real risk that some will become long-term disconnected from the labour market uh, and will find it very hard. And, and Nick might come to this in terms of some of the mental health impacts, which are also quite significant. And some of, just to add to that on the on the labour market, um, some of our other findings are that quite a large proportion of people who have lost their job have gone into retirement at the upper end of the age distribution or or not unemployed. So they're not actively seeking work. Um, and I guess what that says to me is is while we're highly reliant on on the Bureau of Statistics to kind of collect consistent labour force data, measuring unemployment and, and those not in the labour force, I think the the very different labour market at the moment means that some of our standard measures aren't necessarily capturing uh, that disengagement. 
So yeah, partly just to, be, just, a- just to be clear about that, I mean, what you're saying is that once they stop looking for work, once they've decided the situation is, is you know near enough to hopeless, they've got very little chance of getting back into the workforce, they stop looking for work and they stop therefore being unemployed in terms of the statistics because they're not part of the labour market anymore. That's exactly right. So the Labour Force Survey, to be classed as unemployed, you need to both be actively looking for work uh, as well as being able to work if a job was found. And both of those things are going to be affected by uh, COVID-19. So the ability to look for work uh, is going to be harder, especially if kind of physical distancing measures keep uh, keep in place. Uh, the the mo- motivation to do so is going to be less. And also the ability to take on a new job if one was available. I mean, many people have caring responsibilities which have increased since COVID-19. So while we certainly should keep tracking unemployment uh, as a measure of disengagement, we also need to make sure that we, we're looking at other measures like the number of hours worked, like the number of people who've taken early retirement, like the number of people who are just completely disengaged from the labour force. Now, un- unemployment uh, is, is obviously a problem and we're very familiar with it. The other problem that probably gets a bit less press but which is a, uh, you know, an endemic problem across the economy as well is underemployment. Uh, your research shows that uh, people's hours are down on average. I think uh, the average is down from 35.1 hours per week to 31.1 hours per week. Is that right? Yeah, that's just you know people who retain their jobs. We did find that, um, yeah, and, and people when asked, they said their hours had been, it wasn't that they were choosing on the whole to reduce their hours, but they've been required to reduce their hours. Uh, and also uh, quite a lot of people, about one in ten, I think, had, had either been um, taken paid leave um, or were being required, to, being required to take paid leave or being required to take unpaid leave um, to, to reduce their hours. Uh, you know, and so... I'd say overall Australia's done quite well in the circumstances in keeping people engaged with their employers, keeping them employed. There's a big drop in employment but not as big as it could have been. The hours, partly that's sort of flowing through to reduction of hours and that will lead to reductions in income. But you would expect in time underemployment to grow quite significantly. And we're fairly early on in this uh, process. I mean, we might feel like it's been going on for a long time with all the working from home and social distancing and the restrictions on movement but uh, the economic tail of this downturn is, you know, widely now accepted to be deep and long. Um, so uh, some of these effects, I guess, could get worse. Some of those loss of hours. We have many people who, I think you described it before, Matt. I think it was um, as tenuous, a tenuous relationship in in, in the labour market. Uh, you know, precarious work is is well known phenomenon these days. Casualisation yeah. and the like. So. We, we can expect some of these effects to actually deepen, can we not? Yeah, I mean, the, there's been a big effort put in by both uh, the government and by business to try to protect employment. But uh, depending on what happens with the macro economy, if, if it turns out to be very sustained, the ability to do that long term is going to be eroded. And uh, I think we do need to be prepared for long term uh, increased joblessness, and uh, that'll show up in increased unemployment, but it will also show up in increased numbers of discouraged workers, uh, which Nick was talking about earlier. And just finally, before we take a quick break, uh, do you find any difference, um, you know, for people, casual workers in particular, uh, any 
difference show up on the basis of, uh, you know, class, to put it in crude terms, you know, whether uh, people in affluent areas are suffering as much as people in um, perhaps lower socioeconomic areas? Yeah, so a, a couple of responses to that. One is we certainly find that um, those who don't have an employment contract, so casual workers, uh, are more likely to have lost their job. Um, and getting to Bob Gregory's research, those who've been unemployed in the past uh, are more likely to have lost their job. Uh, we don't find two big differences by area in terms of uh, changes in the labour market. We do find some differences in terms of changes in income, but for the most part, um, the employment losses have been reasonably consistent across areas when you control for, for other things. Uh, we do... Um, However, find that occupation does matter, and, and it matters quite a quite a fair bit. Uh, and the uh, kind of professionals uh, are more uh, sorry, are more likely to have, have kept their um, kept their job. And also, what's quite interesting when I mean, you kind of talk about uh, class, and and I don't think that in this early stage of the COVID nineteen recession that. Uh, Class in terms of working uh, middle kind of professional classes has had as big an effect. Uh, in particular, we find that administ- clerical and administrative workers, uh, as well as machinery operators and drivers, uh, are more likely to have kept their jobs than even kind of managers. Uh, so there's been declines for um, some uh, high skilled occupations uh, and also some. Uh, improvements or relative improvements for some relatively low-skilled occupations. So I guess this is, and we know from uh, the, the, the social distancing measures are having differential effects uh, across different industries, and that's kind of playing out in our employment data. Let's take a quick break there, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Nick, I believe you can also quantify the overall toll on mental health um, and, and well-being. Um, you, can, you can actually put a, a dollar figure on that. Is that correct? Yeah. So what we did is is in... In January, uh, which remember was the height of the the bushfires, and already a relatively 
low levels of, of life satisfaction for the Australian population. It had declined a little bit since uh, since October, between October and January. So in January, I asked people on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, sorry, 0 to 10, uh, how would you rate, rate your life um, as a whole nowadays? Uh, and the average score was 6.9 out of 10, which is, as I said, a little bit lower than, than normal for Australia, but not too low. Uh, and then uh, between January and, and April, it declined from 6.9 to 6.5. Now, it's a bit hard to kind of know what that means. Um, it kind of scores on, on 0 to 10 don't have a lot of meaning to it. So what we did is we had a look at the distribution of, of life satisfaction across income. Uh, and we know that there is a positive relationship between life satisfaction and income. The higher your income, the more satisfied you are uh, with your life. And we looked at what would be the equivalent decline in income to lead to the same level uh, or the same reduction uh, in in life satisfaction. Uh, and what we found is it's essentially going from moving from the 80th uh, percentile, so uh, you are uh, richer than 20% of people, so uh, ri- uh, richer than 80% of people and poorer than uh, 20% of people. Uh, and then that's uh, equivalent to that drop in life satisfaction is equivalent to a decline to the 33rd income percentile, which is essentially a drop of $600, a little under $600, $580 per person per week from that change in life satisfaction. So that's essentially saying that if you had the same level of um, or the same drop in life satisfaction at a normal time, that would be the equivalent to losing $580 per week in your pay packet, which in our data is unprecedented. Uh, and certainly you see that in other forms of individual level exposure. So if people lose their job or if people get quite sick or if people uh, obtain a disability, then you see similar drops in life satisfaction. But to see that across the population is unprecedented, at least in our data. Yeah, it's a very significant number. Now, it's it's not a, a million miles away from the level of assistance that is coming forward. Now, I know they're sort of measuring yep. two different things. One is very much a notional number. Yep. But uh, your survey is not all bad news. It tells us that incomes at the bottom of the income distribution have actually gone up. Uh, it suggests the COVID assistance is working. It's doing its job at least at this stage, albeit that it's actually a finite program. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really interesting finding. So a couple of points on that. So we certainly found that if you're in the very bottom of the income distribution in February, uh, then by April your income had gone up by about a third, uh, which is a pretty large increase. Uh, and there were declines in income at the top of the distribution, uh, which meant that there was a shrinking uh, of income inequality uh, between uh, February and April. And as you said, that's mainly due or attributable to uh, some of the um, direct transfer payments uh, which the government has made over that over that period. Um, so in uh, February, uh, if you're at the top of the distribution, your income was seven times that of those at the bottom of the distribution. Uh, by April, you're only six times uh, richer if you're at the top compared to the bottom of the distribution. And once again, this is... Uh, unprecedented in, in in terms of changes in inequality in, in such a short period of time. Uh, now, your your question is exactly right. Is, is this a temporary measure uh, due to the initial um, uh, economic stimulus which the government had put in? And is that going to last throughout? 
the what appears to be a long uh, downturn. That's a, that's an open question, but at least in in the short term, uh, the transfer payments seem to have done the job of uh, sheltering those at the bottom of the distribution from quite quite large drops in income across Australia. And it strikes me that they're operating at two levels, really. There's the material assistance itself, uh, which has really only just started flowing, um, yep. but there's the perception about it, which is important as well. If we cast our minds back to the GFC, um, and we know there'd been a, you know, it was widely regarded as a sort of a skills crisis in the in the years leading up to that. Uh, businesses were having trouble getting adequate skilled labour, and they were told during the GFC, you know, we can see the other side of this. Keep your employees, uh, keep trading, and you know that that's that was part of the, um, you know, addressing the. The uh, the demand shock that was uh, happening there, um, and so you know that that was an important psychological bridge over which to get. Now the government in this case, in the COVID case, was talking about the bridge very early on, talking about getting to the other side, and it certainly hasn't held back in terms of stimulus. I think its uh, overall spending is uh, is is largest as a proportion of GDP around the world. So it's it's a very significant policy lever that the government has pulled, but it is finite. We know it ends in September, October, at least in its current form. I wonder, uh, this is a question I guess for both of you, I wonder um, whether the fact that as as we get towards that period and as we get to a, a realisation across the economy that this is a longer recession, whether there won't be some further you know, sort of second wave economic damage as a result of this. You know, businesses, for example, deciding to hang on to employees if they think they can see the other side. But if they can't see the other side, perhaps they let them go. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, a lot of what's going on is, I mean, there is some material assistance, you said, but it's about maintaining confidence because we know that a loss of confidence means people spend less, the less they spend, less businesses make, the less profits, you know, so it becomes a vicious downward cycle. And so clearly um, they're trying to avoid job losses, business losses and job destruction. Um, But yeah, the longer it goes at some point, um, it really does start to to bite economically and um, governments will start to have to really cut back on its management. The Prime Minister's been quite, Treasurer's been quite clear about this. We can't do this forever. You, know, you can't just print money because um, you know, you've got to have it backed by real economic production and um, the reserves will run down. And so that is going to be the real challenge is uh, what are we going to do longer term? And I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but almost certainly there will be long term, long term. Over the foreseeable future, there'll be strong negative economic consequences. Um, you know, not least the industry we're in, you know, education exports are going to be lower, um, they'll be lower almost certainly for some time, and there's lots of, of course, jobs in universities, but the international students uh, you know, eat in restaurants, uh, rent accommodation, buy clothing, uh, and so the multiplier effects through the economy are, are quite significant. That's just one example. And, and tying it to your data, I mean, the very uh, sort of confidence of consumers who feel, as your data shows up, uh, feel uh, very uh, Nervous about the future, nervous about their own job security. That hardly, as 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 we've been discussing, that's hardly going to make them adventurous consumers, uh, ordering things into the future, making big purchases and those purchases and those sorts of things. So I was just going to say, we also the other um, 
thing which is helping uh, support people's ability to maintain their expenditure is people are drawing down on their savings. Uh, so we're certainly finding that uh, consistent with other data uh, that a large proportion of people are drawing down on their savings. They're, they're taking uh, some of their superannuation early. Uh, and once again, that can't continue. That's a uh, you, you, governments can obviously borrow against the future and individuals can, but the there's limits to how much individuals can draw down on their savings. And I think uh, if the downturn continues, uh, then um, then at some stage, uh, people are going to have to cut back on expenditure more so than drawing down on their reserves. I was at the National Press Club uh, yesterday uh, when Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, made an address that talked about uh, the situation as it is at the moment, made some international comparisons. He was fairly clear that the assistance that is in place at the moment, particularly job keeper and job seeker, uh, will be, uh, you know, are temporary measures. Uh, I put it to him that... Um, there are some other ideas around, including ideas coming out of ANU, uh, for income contingent and revenue contingent loans, for example, as a way of um, providing businesses with with capital to to uh, use now and 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 survive. Do you think they're the sorts of innovative policies that the government should be looking at? Because uh, you know the idea of a of, of a simple cliff over which businesses fall is uh, not a particularly attractive one. It would almost render some of the money that's been spent so far wasted. Uh, so it's a good question. Um, I do think that the government will need to be considering um, different ways of trying to support businesses because it is going to be a big challenge and income contingent loans where you essentially where you have a failure of capital markets. So Businesses, you're saying, well, they can't borrow the money, so the government's going to have to lend, and um, they want to de-risk from a business point of view. Um, so they they will need to be, you know, it's one option. And clearly, uh, they really do not. I, I think the point you make that we are taking very strong measures to limit the spread of of COVID nineteen, and we have to date been very successful in that. Uh, we calculate that the um, Sort of conservative estimates, but the, the, the income cost to households per life saved could be in the order of seven hundred and sixty thousand. Uh, it might be half that, it might be double that, but it's going to be a very big number. Uh, and at some point, the cost per life becomes so high that you have to start to ask the question about the, the trade-offs that are being made. I'm an economist, so people often don't like it when we say this kind of thing, but that is the reality. So trying to be able to smooth the economic recovery out is going to be critical. And um, governments may need to consider quite unconventional policies. Exactly what they look like, I don't know, but I think it will be a circumstance in which they may well need to try things which they wouldn't normally do, and we're already seeing that. I mean, you know, doubling of the unemployment benefits is um, you know, large other payments, a JobKeeper payment is a, really quite a, a radical policy. So, yeah, I think we could see serious discussion of some quite radical options. Nick, obviously what the government's done so far has has gone over quite well in the face of this crisis. It is it has reflected well for uh, the Morrison government and indeed for state governments uh, all around the country. In fact, the story right around the world really is where governments haven't completely botched their response. Uh, trust has, um, has kind of returned, uh, popularity of governments has gone up and faith in the or confidence in the ability of governments 
to deliver seems to have risen. Uh, your research uh, confirms this also? Yeah, definitely. And uh, as you said, there has been a slow but uh, I guess quite consistent decline in confidence um, across many developed countries uh, in government. And uh, we saw that uh, over the over the summer that the confidence in the in the federal government in particular declined quite substantially. Uh, but what's interesting is it's is it's gone it has picked up to higher than it was um, at any time uh, over the last couple of years. So uh, in our data, about fifty seven percent of people said they're confident, very confident in the federal government. It was down to about twenty seven percent in January. So very large increases. The other thing which I found quite interesting and um, perhaps a bit more surprising than confidence in government. So the government's right out there. Uh, um, Scott Morrison, uh, you, you see him pretty much every day in the news. Uh, but confidence in the public service uh, also increased. Uh, and I guess what that says to me is is is, is essentially a, a support for a uh, an expert-based response, at least in the public health domain, and, and in my view, also in the economic domain. Uh, so people are seeing that government's listening to the chief medical officers, listening to Treasury, uh, and that the responses are based on advice from the public service up until now. Uh, and if that continues, I think, uh, then that kind of confidence in, in the message which the, which the bureaucracy and, and experts are giving is, is likely to, to continue. Um, we also find quite big improvements in satisfaction with the direction of the country. Uh, but once again, they're not consistent uh, across the population. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the changes in, in confidence and changes in satisfaction are a little reflect a little bit those who've benefited the most from some of the interventions. So the increase in confidence and increase in satisfaction has came mainly the upper end of the age distribution. Uh, and that kind of makes sense when you think of what the current crisis is, which is closing down the economy, uh, in, uh, um, instigating social distance rules to protect those who are most vulnerable from the virus, who are those at the upper end of the age distribution. And that's not only being picked up in confidence measures, uh, in satisfaction measures, but also in the views which the older Australians have towards other Australians. Uh, so we see quite large increases in social trust. Uh, so people are asked, in general, do you think people can be trusted? In general, do you think people are fair? Uh, in general, do you think people are helpful? We asked that in both February and, and April, and we found very large increases for Australia as a whole, but particularly large increases for those uh, beyond the age of 45, 55 which once again shows that the direction of policy has been mostly, at, at least at this stage, the public health um, approaches have been for those who are most vulnerable. We know that the COVID-19 affects those uh, who, are, who are elderly or, or who otherwise are um, immunosuppressed. Um, and that's kind of being brought out in our data, that, that those who are likely to be affected are, are more likely to be satisfied more likely to have increased their satisfaction and more likely to to think that other Australians are are kind of doing what they can do and and they trust people to be to be helpful and fair and uh, and altruistic it really is quite fascinating isn't it uh, and and I guess some more work could be done drilling down into these aspects of it but this idea that uh, that government 
is uh, it can be trusted. You know, the increase in support for or, or, or confidence in the public service, uh, the recognition that governments are acting on expertise, so the respecting of science and expertise, all of these things. And indeed, the point you make, Nick, about um, increased social trust or I guess you might call social cohesion uh, in the face of a, a common threat, all of these things are quite fascinating. I suspect they have also been the case um Going right back to the Second World War, for example, I imagine uh, that there was a fairly high degree of social cohesion there as well, uh, and and uh, confidence in in the government because it it does rather focus everyone's mind on the same thing. Yeah, but we, we're certainly finding that there are some international differences. Certainly, the trend, as you said, is is that if a government has done a reasonably uh, competent job, that that um, uh, the the trust in government and the confidence in government has gone up, but not exclusive. And but you also see the counter to that. So in Brazil, for example, uh, where there's um, uh, very strong negative views towards the government handling, uh, then many of these measures are going in the opposite direction. In the US, it's a little bit different. US is big, and the uh, there's variation across states and territories. But cert- sorry, across states in the US. Uh, but certainly we find that as the change in Australia is as large or larger than in other comparable countries. And maybe that does reflect the fact that we have done quite well. Our numbers yep. are, are very low. Um, we've, we've uh, you know, flattened that curve, as they say, squashed it. I mean, there seems to be some uh, some kind of minor uh, resurgence in numbers at the moment, which uh, everyone's a little bit worried about. But mm-hmm. uh, we, we we feel like we're getting to the end of that period of, of, of major restrictions, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see where this goes. Do you do further... Um, work uh, with this survey group into the future? So we will. Uh, we are planning uh, to go back to them in May, the same group of people, and then again later in the year. So uh, the plan is to uh, yeah, continue to monitor and to use the power that we have from being able to go back to the same group of people to collect really high-quality data. Uh, but we'll also be putting out quite a lot more research uh, over the coming month from the data we've already collected, uh, including on small business, uh, on uh, authoritarianism and nature's authoritarianism and populism and so on, yeah. Well, we'll certainly be looking forward to talking to you again about that data and can people uh, access the uh, the report you've just uh, produced? Yes, the, the report's available from the ANU uh, website and they, can all, they will also be able to access the actual underlying data if they're so inclined through the Australian Data Archive as part of what we do is to make available the, the you know, de-identified, confidentialised, but the, the raw data so that people are able to do their own analysis and to look at the way, data in the ways we haven't done or perhaps haven't thought of. That's fantastic. Thank you both uh, to Professors Matthew Gray and Nicholas Biddle. It's been terrific having you on talking about this uh, this very new research. Uh, it's only coming out. It's not even out yet, uh, but uh, it'll be out by the time uh, you're listening to this podcast. And um, it's been really terrific. We look forward to talking about it again when there is a subsequent iteration of this. Uh, Democracy Sausage will be back early next week. We'll be looking at what it's actually like trying to run a business inside the hospitality sector, getting some real-world experience from someone who knows a great deal about running businesses in this sector but who also knows about being inside uh, the councils of federal government. And I think it's going to be a very fascinating insight that we can bring to you next week. So look out for that. That's all from Democracy Sausage Extra. Talk to you again soon. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.